Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the program. My guest tonight, Brian Quinn Flanagan, has been a friend of the program for a very long time. There has been more than 380 episodes to date, and he appeared for the very first time in 2018. He was the 18th guest. (laughs) So he'll always have a home here with us. Now, who is this person? Who is this poet? Who is this author, Ryan Quinn Flanagan? He's a Canadian poet and author living in Elliott Lake, Ontario, Canada with his wife and many bears that go through his garbage. A writer for the ages. Did you hear me? He's a writer for the ages. He's been published in numerous print and online journals. So tonight, during this visit, during his homecoming, he'll share a poem from his new collection, Kiss the Heathens. Welcome to the program, Ryan Quinn Flanagan. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me, Michael, and it's an honor to be here as always. <laughs> like I said again, you're my 18th guest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, right from the start. Right from the start there. So you, like I said again, you'll always have a home here. Let's begin this poetic journey. Okay. Your new collection, Kiss the Heathens. What inspired you to write the book? Um, I, I was thinking, of, I had the title first, which I don't normally do. Um, but for for this one I did, and it w- it wasn't really a, a religious concept, but it was uh, or like a non-religious concept, but it was uh, basically the the heathens in terms of just uh, down and out people in life or everyday living, and mm-hmm. trying trying to capture that and, uh, and and do it in a way that was also compassionate and and truthful to those experiences. So that that was the idea behind the title, "Kiss the Heathens," and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, started uh, writing the poems uh, just basically around that basic concept. Well, let's focus again a little bit more on that title, Kiss the Heathens. I mean, that really stands out. I mean, I'm like, wow. <laughs> just the idea. <laughs> you know, it conjures up so many different things. Why did you settle on that, though, that particular one, of all the titles in the universe? Um, I, I thought it was a, the, the best way. Like I said, it was a... Uh, like a compassionate way of looking at at everyday life and, and living, and a lot of the book is that is is uh, people in in different situations, different uh, lives, whether it was their jobs or just uh, interactions, relationships, whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, but you know, kind of looking at it in a way that uh, you know you, you just kind of throw the picture out and try to capture it as best you can, and say you know uh, this is uh, this is the way people are, and this is the way life is. And uh, there, there's one poem in the book called "This Is Open Country," and I think that kind of explains it best. It's it's a poem about uh, some kids basically drinking and running across the highway, mm-hmm. which is a game that they used to do where I where I grew up. But uh, it, it that, that basically it's like uh, you know no God no devil here, and it's kind of an open country and full full of experience or a chance to do that. That was the idea. All right, all right. Tell me about the cover. 
is quite striking. <laughs> yeah, the, the cover is done by um, the publisher, uh, Michelle McDonald. Uh, she, she designed the whole cover, and it, I mean, I absolutely love it. And uh, as soon as I saw it, she, she sent it over, and she's like, uh, how is this? And, you know, I opened up, I'm like, uh, that's perfect. That's brilliant. That's exactly what I, what I had in mind. And, uh, you know, she, she's great. And uh, it was the best experience working with her. And, uh, yeah, when I saw the cover, I, I was just like, that's exactly kind of what I had in mind for how the book would look and what the book means as well. So mm-hmm. it was perfect. It was just like, yep, that's it. <laughs> so. Now, I did not share the publisher. Tell us yeah. about the publisher. Uh, the publisher is Roadside Press, and they publish um, all kinds of great writers, and uh, they, they have a, a sister press too. It's, it's all run by Michelle McDonald, mm-hmm. a very talented writer in, in her own right, but uh, she publishes all kinds of great writers and at Gutter Snob Books and Roadside Press are the two. Uh, mm-hmm. You know Cap. You know Catfish. He's one of them. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, I know Catfish. <laughs> yeah. And But like, there's, like, so many good writers. She she publishes just basically uh, amazing writers all the time. And right, uh, really. so, so it was an honor to be a part of, of that, get to be a part of that. I wanted right. to. Now, in general, in terms of predominant themes that you write about, what do you write about ordinarily in your work? Um. A lot of it with the with the narrative poems, it tends to be more um, like I said, but just uh, people's lives or, or situations, mm-hmm. and okay. and then often, often snippets of them that mm-hmm. uh, kind of give give like some kind of deeper picture beyond that. But it's just usually quick snippets of of everyday life, um, different situations, uh, work, right. home, relationships, whatnot. And then there's there's kind of other poems that are a little less that, and they're they're kind of I call them wandering poems. Okay. And and they're kind of uh, they, they jump around a bit more. They're a bit more fluid. Um, they, they're kind of on the topics, but not, not really straight narrative or, or character-based. So they, mm-hmm. they kind of break up. It's those two things that I kind of use to build the book around, I guess. Yes, yes. Well, everyone, without further ado, I give you my friend, Ryan Quinn Flanagan. You're on. All right. Thanks, Michael. Um, this first poem is the, the first poem of the book. It's called uh, Tippy Hedron Called. And uh, M- Michelle was great. She, she actually put a picture of Tippy Hedron um, having uh, uh, her cigarette lit by a crow on the set of the birds uh, on the inside with the, uh, the opening poem. So that was great. But um, here's the poem. Tippy Hedron Called. Tippy Hedron Called, I said. She wants her birds back. The woman I was with tried to shush me with, my, with a finger to my mouth. The pet shop kept the lizards beside the birds, in these tiny little cages like loneliness under a hot light. Some toothy sales kid on commission walked up and asked if he could be of any assistance. Is that any way to treat the lizard people, I shouted? Sorry, sir, I don't understand. Your superiors, the lizard people, locked away like common muggers. They seem happy, he said. Please ignore him, I heard a voice from behind me. Do you have any sharks, I asked, besides the ones that work on commission, am I right? I work on commission, the toothy kid admitted. Not enough, Junior, I smiled. She was ignoring us both now, had moved on to the puppies and kittens in the back, that passive-aggressive sign that always asks you not to knock on the glass. If she returned to the pet shop, 
or the mall. She did not. She did never did it with me. She got a dog. I know that much. Some pure breed that would make Lenny Riefenstahl blush. Superior slobber and all that shit. No idea what happened to Captain Commission. Probably started his own line of pet recliners and made a bottle. Getting in on the ground floor, just like the elevator in my building always does. And uh, this next one I'll read is, is kind of an idea of where I was talking earlier about the character poems and the, the snippets. And this one's called Staying in the Room Where, my ex, where Her Ex-Husband Used to Beat Her for $49 a Night. She seems to know I don't have it in me. Staying in the room where her ex-husband used to beat her for $49 a night. The nice couple that own the place imploring us to pet their dying cone-headed dog as they hand us the key. Reassured that such matters are just a precaution. That he kept itching where he should not itch, which sits just fine with a man who has been itching the short and scragglies for almost a half century of higher gas and lower expectations. And she moves right in as though she never left, which makes me feel bad because this is a family place and family should give you better, although it never really does. And this one's called A Bar Mitzvah Made to Look Like a Suicide. Rabbi Rosen can be a stickler when it comes to reciting the Torah and stammering Lenny Horowitz is really slogging through the theological jungle it is painful to watch, friends and family gathered, a bar mitzvah made to look like a suicide. And you get the feeling little Lenny doesn't want to enter manhood at all. And who could blame him, wise boy? And I can feel his face on fire, each new acne breakout establishing its own city limits. That terrified, cracking voice you can barely hear, even at the front of the church. Poor little Lenny, he was such a nice boy. Helped his mother with the groceries on the long walk back from Zeman's. Uh, this one's called Fuck You and the Yogi You Rode Into Town On. <laughs> if I had faith, don't you think I'd show it off like some shiny new Fuck Me Corvette or some in-ground pool just back from Water Wing Hell? Would you rather kneel in a temple or sit in a recliner? That's what I thought. Fuck you and the yogi you rode into town on. Stinking up my place with all that bloody incense. More like nonsense if you ask me, which of course no one ever does. And I offer to drop my shorts to show you my third eye. Give you the name of a decent alignment guy down at the mechanics. If you are that worried about your chakras. No, I am not a vegetarian. I am a meaty, throbbing carnivore just like all the rest. Thanks for the prayer mat. I've been looking for something the cat can scratch the hell out of that is not me. The cat that is a carnivore, while we are on the topic of adorable little forms of mass murder. Of course I believe in God. I have a cat, don't I? <laughs> and... uh this one's called Everyone Everyone Gets Gas. <laughs> My only gas station gig. The boss was a total asshole. Made me change tires as people filled up and drove off. 
blaming me for not being attentive to the customer. I told them I thought they got exactly what they came for, not wanting my attentiveness, just the gas. He threatened to take it out of my check, but I was making so little it wouldn't even cover the first two culprits. He fired me and I thanked him. I remember that. I was so tired of the graveyard, of getting kicked around like some crushed soda can you feel you find in the street. My next gig was telemarketing, cold calling, trying to sell freezer orders of beef for 5.85 an hour from the second floor of this nondescript building along Dunlop Street. You'd never know it was there, which is just the way I felt about myself at the time, living in my aunt and uncle's basement with the many jars of preserves. Wow, Ryan. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I I can tell that I'm going to need to myself (laughs) because I'll be laughing inappropriately. But... uh, But, <laughs> hey, in 2007, you contributed an article to Century Magazine, My World and Words, an Uneasy Balancing Act. And you made this statement as I was reading through it today. You said, writing to me has always been an easy balancing act between escape and hard reality. Yeah. I prefer writing poems that contain strange ideas or turns of phrases while trying to still express something deeply relatable and real. Let's talk about that. So I guess my question is, if it's an an easy balancing act, how are you able to select the poems for this collection? Did it lean toward escape or did it lean toward hard reality? Um, At at the start when I was writing, this one definitely lent more towards uh, harder reality. And, and character narrative poems. And then as I went on, as, as usually happens, you get some of the, the wandering poems a bit and, um, you know, a bit more jumping around, and which I enjoy doing. And um, it, it really is a balancing act between those, those two all the time. And I guess to, to varying degrees, it's, it's which one dominates more than the other. And I guess in this case, it's the former. But uh, they both are present at all times. So, it, like I said, when I'm writing it, it really is a balancing act. And sometimes poems have both. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's somehow it's uh, characters or, or things, situations end up in there that you're trying to explain. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's in a very uh, light way that that's uh, different than the other ones. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of the yin and yang of life. You know? Yeah. Wow. You know, when you think about this book in terms of organizing it is it grouped in terms of theme how's the style how did you go about that how did you form the sections of if there are sections um yeah i never i never do sections and uh if the i i have the themes basically in my head like uh like three or four themes that i i notice when i'm writing and mm-hmm. i kind of just keep that basically in my head like on a most basic level that noting that it's in those poems and then you you write the poems you go along and then uh, when you go to assemble them, you you keep that in mind, and so you try to keep some. Of, I try to keep some of the styles that are uh, more alike. Keep those poems separate um, from each other, and then the the themes. You just you try to spread them out so they it kind of is a recurring theme in the book. Certain things, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, that's kind of how I order it. And then outside of that, the only only rule I have, if you can call it a rule, 
is uh, mm-hmm. I, I kind of treat it more like uh, building an album, like okay. uh, like a, a record, like with those old, you know, you get your old vinyl and you'd look at the the albums and the way they built it. And that and that's kind of how I approach uh, building books is, is like building albums. Wow. And uh, wow. so the, so when I'm spreading the themes out, I'm kind of keeping that in mind or like a musicality with the words as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I treat it kind of like building an album. Or I guess a concept album. But. All right. What's your favorite concept album then? Um, uh, obviously, The Wall is great. Okay. Pink uh, Floyd, all right. Yeah, yeah, and, and that would be that would be one that's really structured like that. Although they have kind of sections. Um, mm-hmm. I also like uh, uh, Nine Inch Nails, the the Fragile. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, re- really love that one and. Uh, there, there, there's so many. Like I, I like uh, Radiohead's uh, OK Computer, the way it structured that album. All right. All right. You're giving me some tips for what I should listen to later on. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back to my saying that I need to mute myself. You also stated in the 2017 article that there's almost always a dash of humor and that for yeah. you, humor has always been important to you as both a tool of sarcasm and as something preserved in the face of a world that often does not seem too funny to experience each day. And what I want to know from you, Ryan, is does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Yeah, it, it doesn't. Um, I think it used to when I was younger, the way I approached it. And, and now it, it doesn't. Um, but there was even humor back then. Like I, I'm always, I'm a joker at heart. So okay. Okay. Uh, they'll, they'll always, it'll be in the, some of the titles will make you laugh or I'll do, I'll do little things that were, you know, they're, they're upset all the time or, or little jokes or humor thrown in, uh, which of course the, the world would, we can certainly see now is, is not really funny, but uh, yes. it, it doesn't mean that you have to get caught in the, the straight drudgery of it. I, I always think humor is very important, especially as a uniting factor for people too. Uh, mm-hmm. in one experiencing the world but two when you're when you're reading a book or reading any work or looking at any work of art I think humor is a, a great uh, connector of people because uh, people people can see it and, it and it's very relatable and mm-hmm. uh, it breaks down barriers I think humor is the best way to do that and and humor yeah, sure. is uh, central to me well you know for me I've shared many times that if I didn't laugh I'd cry all the time so yeah I believe yeah. in humor as well yeah it's, I, had a, I have a saying that I always, I always think about, and I wrote it somewhere. I forget what it is. But uh, mm-hmm. it was uh, uh, basically when you're looking at things that, uh, you know, you either, you either laugh at the joke or you are the joke. Mm. And, and, I choose, mm. and, I, and I choose to laugh. So mm-hmm. Yes. Was, yes. Yeah, well, we, we can talk after the show about uh, <laughs> growing up in humor. Well, yeah. please share some more of your work. Sure. Uh, this one's kind of like the humor we were just talking about. This is a title of this poem, My, Lino- My Linoleum Will Floor You. A pun can be intended just as blunt force trauma can, and you should know right off that my linoleum will floor you. Astound you, really, like some browbeater Prometheus sticking his head inside the mouth of a cowering circus tiger in cages, large enough to house half a dozen men on their way to lethal injection without a note from a doctor, which is how ditches become culverts, 
and the Pollyannas pretty up everything, including these spanking new floors you can't help but walk over, with that dominatrix friend with a cricket paddle and a fine British accent full of safe words and a few of the other kind. And this next one's called The Devil's Coffee in a Cold Styrofoam Cup. Pulling up that brown 70s cigarette burn comforter at $79 a night, I sit and listen to the main strip traffic splash through the flooded drainage system for a few hours. Play with a rounded switch on the bedside lamp that went out when Hirohito when Hirohito poisonous blowfish bit it under a careless knee-jerk sky that had moved on to other things. That hyena-packed deck of cards missing the one-eyed Jack in the Gideon's preachy side table. Another cold water 5 a.m. shower and I am back on the road. The devil's coffee in a cold styrofoam cup in my lap. And a dawn's motionless deer still littering the long, gutted highway with eyes white as watermelons. And this this next one is, I guess, not so funny, but uh, it's uh, more of a, I guess you could call it a confessional one, but it's uh, about my, my family directly. It's called Spilling the Beans. My parents tried to kill me, threw me down a flight of stairs when I was eight months old. I had to be airlifted with a brain hemorrhage, was given a less than 10% chance of living by the doctors. And when I survived, my mother waited until I was old enough to understand language to tell me, quote, I hate you and wish you were never born on many occasions. Then she started in on my little sister, pulling on her hair as she combed it out each morning, yelling at her to stop crying like a little baby and calling her a little bitch. And when I tried to protect my little sister, my father stepped in and always protected my mother. Until he cheated on her with the waitress he met at one of his favorite restaurants. Finally building up his asshole courage to leave my mother and move in with the waitress of his dreams. And now um, one more humor than the last one. Uh, This is called The Eagle Has Landed. The buildings were closed at night so the janitorial team could come in and clean. Blocks of buildings done in rotation by the same three-man team. Dunstler was the lead. Sussman had been there a couple years, and Waltham was the new guy. Each in charge of separate floors as they went from one building to the next. Dunstler had recently introduced a new walkie-talkie system to make sure everyone was awake and doing their job. You there, Sussman? No answer. Sussman, quit playing with yourself. You there? Asked Dunstler again. Then a voice came back over the walkie-talkie. The eagle has landed. Then another voice. The hawk has dropped another egg. Quit fucking around, you idiot, said Dunstler. Don't you realize we have four buildings to do tonight? The wiener has been tugged, came Sussman's voice. The eagle has been dusted, Waltham's scratchy voice chimed in. Dunstler wanted to laugh, but there wasn't time. Four buildings was a heavy night each building with many rooms and floors. The Walton has dropped a deuce, came Sussman's voice again. Just laughter from Walton. Dunstler began to think this new walkie-talkie system may not have been a good idea, that they would be all be out of the job. The Dunstler has been oiled, came Sussman's voice. Dunstler said nothing. 
emptying all the garbages in the room before turning out the light and moving on. <laughs> and this one is called The Sleeping Bags on the Subway Grate Are Not a Sleepover. Another extreme cold advisory from those never left out in it. Frostbite in moments, according to the public health officials, who look good on television after hair and makeup, and I can see my breath as I walk down by Dundas Square, bundled up like some fine young, fine-knitted yeti under all those bright advertisements flashing from every corner. The sleeping bags on the subway grate are not a sleepover. Shifting every so often so you know that someone is still alive under there. No one really ever taking a notice anymore of something that is always there. That birthmark on your thigh or that used bookstore full of musty dog ears. I never see their faces, but the shame is to be shared even if the cold is not. Wow. I mean, how do you follow a set like that with questions? <laughs> Thanks. You know, now, of course, it's none of my business whether any of those stories are real or not, and you don't need to share. But that's oh, oh, they're, oh, they're real. <laughs> oh, oh, Ryan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, for you, is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? Um. I think when I was when I was younger, there was a lot more of the the wall building, okay. and then uh, and then you you kind of discover that the you know the more honest you are in your writing, um, that that will that will connect or resonate with people more because they're they're looking for that. They're a lot of them are doing it in their own writing as well, and uh, you know like I said, you can still do it with humor. I mean, not yes. all of them obviously have humor, but. Um, a, a more honest way of looking at yourself and looking at the world and other people. And I, I think that's the most relatable way. And if you do it kind of in a, a relatable language as well, then, then people can really understand and you, you connect with them better, I think. All right. In terms of relating, in terms of language, do you see yourself as more of a storyteller or wordsmith or a combination? I guess it's both a combination, but I, I always I always thought more of a wordsmith because I, I like the idea. Like I said, I like to do the wandering poems and you know kind of have uh, sometimes some obtuse language or go wandering a bit and and be playful with it. Um, but when when I do go back and look at a lot of the stuff, I you, you I kind of have to concede that I might be more the storyteller. Mm -hmm. I just uh, like I I'm not meaning to. I I was actually setting out kind of do the other thing, but I think naturally it kind of goes towards the the storyteller yes. uh, even though i like the idea of the wordsmith and i like to experiment and, and go that way but i i think it's probably the former all right so when you write are there poetic devices that you use most often or it's just whatever is on your mind at that time how do you go about that um i i noticed i use a lot of metaphors mm -hmm. uh um, often with the turns of phrases too, um, I notice that in a lot of the poems there's a lot of alliteration. Uh, the the titles will often be plays on things. Uh, they'll be comical or humorous, but they'll they'll usually be small plays on idioms uh, mm -hmm. that are that are common. Uh, and then I just kind of switch them up or play with the words a bit, but they're they're basically plays on that. So there's 
those are those are the kind of the literary devices I see the most. All right. You know, speaking of titles too, you know, please share with me the titles of five poems in the book. Any five poems. Yep. <laughs> okay. The failed magician has arm hair up his sleeve. <laughs> Let me stop. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, the, the Birdman of Alcatraz is sacrosanct in avian circles, never concerned with popular flight. Uh, the key to the bathroom is just the key to the city by other means. Uh, oh, that one's funny. Uh, Holly, don't go lightly into that good night with a red wheelbarrow full of Tintern Abbey. <laughs> Okay. Good gal. Yeah, and I guess that. Oh, yeah. That'll do it. That'll do it. Oh, that's fine. Okay. That'll do it. My question is to you, when titling a poem, and I mean, your your titles are, one, they're out there, two, they're original, three, they're, I don't know, I can't describe it. When you title a poem, my friend, what should you consider when you're putting one together? The title of a poem. Um, I, I kind of look at the the theme really loosely. Like um, the 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 title can it, it'll be it'll be related to it directly, but really in a in a loose way, and then that allows you to be more playful with the words and mm-hmm. uh, like. I I I prefer it too when it's not you're not just playful in the poem like I I like the titles to be really kind of playful and too and and really grab your attention definitely come it with different words uh, putting different images together um, like some of them that I was just reading there I just, I, I prefer titles like that uh, not always but but uh, it it is fun to do I do enjoy that okay so the poem about being thrown down the stairs I can't yeah. remember the title of the piece share that title again. Oh, uh, that's uh, spilling the beans. You would never know. <laughs> yeah. What was yeah, the <laughs> Oh my that, gosh. That just kind of a straight confessional, so I figured spilling the beans was the best yes. way to put it. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. well, we'd like to know what comes first, the title or the poem. Um. Uh. It depends when when I'm writing it. Um. Sometimes I'll have the ideas for the titles. Uh, a lot of the times I just let it, I'll just let it flow and whatever comes out, comes out. And then I'll often find the title comes out in the poem. And then, and then I'll use uh, one of the lines or a thing that I like from the poem and I'll go, Oh, that, that's the title there. And, you know, it, it kind of, it comes to me. I don't, I don't really think too much about much of them. So. All right. All right. Here's a follow-up question to that one. When you write my friend, who yeah. leads, you or the poem? Uh, definitely the poem. In my case, it's. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have like. Tell me more. I have I have like writers' notes, but they're very few, and it's just like a basic skeleton idea or a word or two. Sometimes the title will come first, and you write that down. But often you'll you'll go up. Some days I'll go up with no notes, and I'll just sit, crack open a bottle of wine and just uh, just write away. And. Uh, <laughs> And and have some fun at it, and and then whatever comes out comes out. So it, I definitely let it uh, have free reign. I just I let it off the lead and <laughs> just let it go where it goes. And uh, right. 
and then editing is where you kind of try to I, I don't change too much in the writing but you kind of go mm-hmm. back later and then you can kind of see sometimes you'll shake your head at yourself you know and but uh yeah that's that's my process all right we're going to take a brief break but here's a question that i'd like to ask you now that you can answer after the break all right sure how much mental mental energy should it take to solve a poem or to understand it? Does it make sense? Yeah. How much mental energy? All right. We'll be right back. Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Ryan Quinn Flanagan. Ryan, I asked a question. I asked you a question because people often talk about accessibility in terms of poetry. So again, so how much mental energy should it take to solve or understand a poem? In your opinion? I, I don't think it should take too much. I mean, um, I, I try to write accessible often, not 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 always, but I, I think for for the reader, I, I prefer it to be um, more relatable and in accessible language and that. But there are things like a, like when I'm reading, a, say, like Philip Larkin or something like that, um, it can seem simple at times. But then you kind of got to stop and, and look at the because the language is really it switches and it's really rich. And it has these, you know, things, and there are things you got to, you know, you sit and think about more. Um, So in that case, there's certain, there's certain writers where you do that. Uh, Frank O'Hara a bit too, but uh, yeah, I think most of the time it's, I I like, I prefer it more accessible. Um, I I, I find it takes me a lot of mental energy to write. Like I'm tired after a day of writing, but, uh, but reading, I, I, I think it should be pretty accessible for the reader. So for you then, what is the most difficult part of the artistic process? And then conversely, what's the easiest part of it? Um, the the most difficult part for me is uh, the editing. I, I hate editing. <laughs> the, the editing process is horrible. <laughs> but uh, and and the, the the fun part for me is writing. I, I enjoy it. Like it, it does. It tires me though. Like it'll take a day or two to recover after you after you do it, because I'll sit and write for about uh, six or seven hours. Mm, and it's a long time. And then I'll, be, I'll kind of be really lethargic and tired, certainly for the next day. Um, right. But, uh, and so then you, you know, take a few uh, days, and then you can come back and do something again. But, um, yeah, that's how it works for me. So in terms of the editing, what exactly is it that's the, the sticking point for you? 
Oh, just the process of itself. Like I said, I, I make very few um, changes to the poems once they're written. I, I just assume they're written in a time and place, and I I fix spelling and grammar uh, issues. But besides that, I don't really change much of anything else. Um, I just I just treat it like it was written that day and that time. And um, if I'm happy with it, then I just go with that, and that's what I I almost always do. Okay. Okay. Well, let's continue this poetic journey. Please share some more of your work. Sure. This one's called The the Junkie in the Bathroom. James Bond was invented in the faraway Caribbean so that there are no heroes in real time, and I stumble over the junkie in the bathroom, drooling across a sickly institutional green tiled floor that has not been cleaned since mental health went looking for answers up the nose. Half a dropper's blood still sticking out of some bruised patchwork arm that probably knew it had a hot shot coming. The sound of the hairdryer still going so that I know I am not the first to such discoveries, but perhaps the first to care. This next one is the uh, title poem of the book, Kiss the Heathens. The tower is alive, still unbeaten. Grass-fed along some country road where spent goldenrod forgets to live. Arguments in cars that sit in stone driveways, steaming up the windows. That clumsy truck stop way, sloppy Joe beliefs stay behind to kiss the heathens. Stand over flooded urinals of endangered elephant ivory. One for the road to El Dorado, instances of smoker's cough, an adulterer's blanket through crinkled toes, that pavement burn that never quite heals like you want it to, that thing they call a burn, another French kiss mouth with more tongue than sense, so many stairs to climb in the dark that our painted caffeine pharaoh just back from coffee bar Egypt never tries. And this one is called Woman with a Blue Drink. She sits three tables over, petulant as pigeon swoon. A sun hat so large and intrusive that it bangs against the backs of other patrons. And my lazing hammock eyes sit people watching. An open patio to bring in foot traffic from the big wide world. But the woman with the blue drink can't stop running into scissors in a social sense. And I get the feeling one or two other patrons may be planning her murder in the budding chestnut of their heads. Well, the waiter with the clip-on tie comes running out with a tray loaded down with dishes for the table full of hip-huggers just in town, their boxy sequin luggage tucked under the table amongst an army of freshly painted toes. And this one is called Leaving for Croatia. He writes to tell me he is leaving for Croatia in a week, and I ask him what the hell he thinks is in Croatia that is not here, and he answers Croatians, as though he is being smart. So I tell him to have a good time in Latvia, where goldfish dance the jitterbug and all the buildings are repeat felons. And this one is titled, Working the Graveyard and Never Once Thinking of Death. 
if you're looking for a way out, a path seasoned trackers will give up on in spite of high motivation and toilet training in the extreme. I've worked long enough that I never want to bend to the faltering hours again. Not in the factories, not along the line, muling my back out for decades like some something meant to fail. Working in the graveyard and never once thinking of death. That time card in your hand like there's a nearby punch clock to swipe in case of troubles with your laminated name on it, like all the others that came before. And this one's called Silent Partner. This one was usually not mean-spirited, even called him a friend before I learned that those do not really exist. Just competing interests and those momentarily aligned. But we were at this pop- popular downtown beer hall along Spadina Avenue, and he introduced me to his new love interest. She went right into sign language, his silent partner, he joked. A deaf mute making those strange guttural noises whenever she tried to accentuate something. A really nice girl, much too good for this one or any of us at that young time. She didn't even come with a friend, just left there to hang. I was the best of the worst, but what is that really? People are the worst to each other because it is easy, especially after a couple drinks. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> that, that one was a true story as well. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need a drink after we finish. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, when I thought about that word heathen again or heathens. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I had a great question. I'll have to – it'll come back to me. It's one of those questions that pops in your head. <laughs> oh, yes. Here it is. When I think of the word heathen, I think yep. of a person who's an outlier, uh, someone who is shunned potentially by society for whatever reason, and they may go through life feeling voiceless. So how does poetry help – Anyone feel as if they've got a voice. Again, I'm just throwing that one in there yeah. <laughs> for five dollars. All right, how do you? What do you think? I want to hear your thoughts on that. I, I think it's it's tough. I know for me, I mean, I mm-hmm. I I need to write. I know that. So okay. for, right. for, for for me, expression is is absolutely important as an individual and and having the ability and the time to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But. For for life, I agree with heathen. That's kind of that's actually a perfect word. What I was looking for was uh, when I was approaching the book, where I was trying to say not in a religious sense, yes. but more like outliers of mm-hmm. society or or people that are kind of on the outs or you know dealing with uh, jobs that they have not so well or relationships they have not so well, and um, you know how how life can be tough in that way. Then uh, I. I think it's tough for poetry to help too much, I guess. Like I said, mm-hmm. if you can read something that's relatable and, and humorous and, and kind of brings a, a smile to your face about things that may, may not always be like that, then I, I think that's helpful. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's something I, I always try to do or try to keep in mind when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. You know, life, as I'm, again, I'm just, this is just kind of just, stream of consciousness there's a healthy tension in life um yeah. it's pretty much what you're writing about you know the harsh reality versus 
this, the times where we want to feel frivolous and just have fun for fun's sake. Yep. There's just this. And so what I'd like to know, and it's not on this topic, of course, but as you think about who you are now, how has your work evolved as you've grown as a writer, as a poet? As you think about that healthy tension, how has it changed? I, I think it had a lot more of uh, straight tension early on. Ooh, just uh, okay, <laughs> okay, it, all right, all right. In, 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 all right. in, in youth, that kind of tends to happen. But mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. um, you know, as I got a little older, it's I, I find that the writing is, and the humor helps with it. But I think there's there's it's there's much more of a, a tinge of compassion. I understand. Uh, what people have gone through now, what I've gone through as well. So I, I can relate more and it, it kind of, I think it thickens up the writing. It, it helps make it better. It's not so harsh um, mm-hmm. or, or mean, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a lot more compassionate. There could still be um, mean commentaries or things, but uh, it, I, I find that I have a lot more compassion now in the writing and I, I, I enjoy that. I think it helps and it helps with right. respect because you, you okay. understand Mm-hmm. Well, then how would you classify your ability to write poetry as a creative gift or creative art? Um, I, I always look at it kind of an art and that uh, I, I, I really enjoy fine art and, uh, you know, movies, music. I, th- I think music's one of the highest forms of art, but I, I always look at it as you're, you're creating art and mm-hmm. – uh, and I always, I always look at people too when they're other people as well when they're writing, um, when they say something is it, is it you know one it connects but is it interesting is it is there turns or things that make you you think little turns of phrase or uh, concepts or ideas that you kind of thought it would go one way but it definitely didn't and it you know it was something there's something different there, and and that's kind of where I think the the art lies, and so I, I definitely look at it as creating art. You know, as you've grown and changed and seen the world, who are some of the writers, thinkers, readers, human beings who inspire you now or inspire your writing? Um, well, there's plenty of writers that are and great artists out there today that mm-hmm. um, some of them I work with. Um, okay. Or, but uh, if you're talking like like historically, like influences. Um, no, actually today, today, based on what today. you've seen of the world, like right now in your life, yeah. in your world right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it would be the 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 writers that, um, like, you know, Catfish, and uh, yeah. we, we know many uh, of the same writers, and, and I have many artists that I work with for uh, different covers and stuff, and they're, they're just fantastic artists. I can't believe what, what they can do. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that that's the type of stuff that inspires me all the time is, is the creative – things that I can see people doing that that's the great thing for, for Facebook for me was I've connected to all these artists, different types of artists uh, mm-hmm. working in different styles. And it's uh, it's amazing to see what people can do. I, uh, I enjoy it so much and connecting with them and working with them. Yes. And I believe, and I'm sure you do too, that with zoom, zoom has truly changed the poetic world because yeah. you could be in your home and I'm in North Carolina right now, but tomorrow I could be in India you know, it's yep. changed the way that we that we think, the way we operate. So, yep. with that in mind, what about social media? How has it contributed to poetry? Um, 
I think, or not contributed. <laughs> I, I, I think with with poetry itself, like the the actual writing, I, I don't know. Like I guess if you um, if you were looking a lot into the tendencies of the writing, then it would. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think it contributes too much to mine at all. Okay. Um, but it, it but in terms of connecting with the artists and and publishers and and editors and certainly the artists, um, you you get to see what they're doing and all over the world and the fresh takes and the different takes. And uh, it, it just really opens your, your, your world up to a way that it wouldn't have been before, like mm-hmm. before this, when it was just, you know, the self-addressed envelopes you're sending out and, you know, it's your small world and you're just writing in your, your uh, little room yes. and th- there was no connectedness really at all. So it was really just you mm-hmm. and, and the books but now, now there's so many people out there, and, and they can influence you, and uh, they, they, you know, they can show you artists or things that you haven't seen, and uh, that's happened to me all the time, and um, that, that's where it's opened things up. And like you said, you know, you could be in India tomorrow, you can be uh, talking to somebody in Russia. There'll, there'll be people from all over the world. Yes, so, it's true. <laughs> it's, it, and that, that's fantastic. You know, so when you think about a particular book. Are you hoping that the book resonates with a broad range of readers, or are you attempting to target a specific audience? Um, I, I never try to target a specific audience. I always, I always hope it's as broad a readership as possible, um, that they enjoy the writing. I, that's why I try to make it accessible or connect through humor or different uh, ways, because I, I, I hope that you know pretty much anybody could read it and mm-hmm. uh, find something in, in it and enjoy it. And uh, so that, that's always my approach is I, I want it to be uh, as, as broad as possible. Very nice. So if someone asked you, a potential reader, to give them some advice prior to reading the book, what would you share with them? Um, yeah, I, uh, that, that's a tough question. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, Ryan, that's why they pay me the big bucks, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why this question is coming from your yacht. <laughs> in the out in the Black Sea, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> off yeah. the Turkey. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell me, man, if I wanted to pick your book up and I'm like, Ryan, should I buy this book from me, brother? What advice would you give me in terms of what I need to be prepared for? Uh, I, I would say just be prepared for uh, things that uh, that may seem obvious, but then they they won't be. That you know things will be turned on their head. I, I like mm-hmm. to do that a lot and and okay. kind of mess around with things and and turn phrases. So I would say you know kind of just to, uh, kind of expect the unexpected and and mm-hmm. have uh, look forward to some happy surprises. Hopefully. All right, then. Hey, continue sharing your work, my friend. Okay, thank you. This is probably the only um, COVID poem I ever wrote, uh, just from, you know, the two years of hell that we all went through (laughs) or so and continuing. But it's called, uh, Do You Dream of People in Masks Now? We were almost two years into some blurry day-drinking pandemic that had failed everyone when she asked me that question. Do you dream of people in masks now, she asked. I had never thought of it, but I told her I dreamt of them the old way. I could see the surprise on her face. 
I could tell that she did not, not anymore. It was probably another six months before I had my first max, max dream. Then I started to see them everywhere, jumping out of the popcorn ceiling overhead. When I told her I finally saw them, she seemed to feel a little better. Not that I was seeing what she was seeing, but that she was not alone. All that wine, the way you start to clank when you walk. So that was our <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, I was go- I'm going to read This is Open Country because I had mentioned that one earlier as, as kind of a central uh, idea with uh, the, the game that we played as a kid running across the highway, but how it was central to this book. So this is called This is Open Country. First there was the bottle, then the boys broke down. Stripped down to babe in born, babe is born, streaking across six lanes of highway traffic, before howling through the patchy half-sickle woods in some lime-soaked pauper's victory and beating early hair chest with bloody invincibility fists that knew your life was never really yours to begin with. You look scared, jeered Wilkerson, slamming Bradley on the back after three false starts. Bradley screaming back across all those dark lanes and taking the bottle from Farmer, who drew a pentagram in the blood on his forehead before shooting back across the highway towards Wilkerson. They were always a bottle, there was always a bottle on the other side, and Bradley took a giant swig when he got there. You think some stupid devil is going to help you, asked Wilkerson? This is open country. Then Wilkerson opened up. Uh, walked up to the shoulder of the road and started beating off to the passing cars that stared that started to honk. Bradley was waiting on the other side, 400 meters from the nearest off-ramp, slamming back a bottle that would never drink itself. And this one is called Midnight Gas Station Sandwich. Essa Road was always close close as poorly paved excuses, that long drunken pilgrimage over the Highway 400 bridge, past the White Towers Motel with bloodlust bed bugs for walls, half the doors kicked in from previous raids, and the way our camel-dry throats hump parched through that ringing slime bell door, that midnight gas station sandwich which always tasted like the best thing in existence, ravenous tearing hands through the package, Something slurred for the pimply cash-out boy trying to keep tally in a dying time. Then back over the bridge, the graffiti of whooshing lights of passing trolls, rinsing taste bud tongues and never the microwave people. Three kinds of mystery meat, at least one of them pretending to be roast beef. (laughs) And... This one's all buried with the treasure. This will not become another somber poem about the dead buried with the treasure. Those winning Spanish bullion legs your grandmother had during the war drove the enemy to bedroom armistice, if you are to believe the family lore. Old pictures shared as evidence. We will assume the priest had said his piece, that the many smelly freedom fighters will never declare theirs, and that this poem is about something else entirely. Rolled up bus pass, dragon fruit in season, that scratchy razor wire voice. And the, the last one I'll read is called Scratch Pad. I got out my pencil and scratch pad and asked her to sit for me. 
A large smile shot across her face. She seemed very excited. I told her to try remain as still and quiet as possible. Then I took a long look and began drawing. She shifted a few times but remained fairly still. An hour later, I put down the pencil, announced that I was finished. I showed her the sketch on my sketch pad. At first, she seemed confused, then angry. I could not understand why. I'd drawn a very beautiful city. Wow. You write incredibly well, my friend. <laughs> Thanks. You really you really do. I mean, I'm too old to lie at this point. Um, <laughs> that's my new favorite thing to say. And it's true. So how would you describe your poetry in general or this specific book? What does it communicate about the human condition? I think it probably communicates that it's uh, um, what we're given is is a tough hand mm. in most cases, and uh, yeah, sure. we, we 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 should depend on people a little more because we have to, and depend mm -hmm. on each other and help each other. But um, that the, basically we have a tough hand, but if we can find humor in it, uh, we can find a way through it, and um, and and kind of find something that is is worth. Uh, living for, but that it, it's not easy. It's never easy. So that that's kind of what I would uh, say it, it is. Well, that's a profound statement. So how did it take you to write this particular book? The writing part, I probably it was probably over a four month period, I think. Okay. So what do you think you'd learned about yourself at the end? Once you turned it in to the publisher, and let's say you saw it on the shelf or on Amazon or wherever. What do you think you learned about yourself during that entire process? Um, like I said earlier, I think I think I learned that uh, with with age, uh, I, the perspective is actually open more because there's uh, there's more compassion in the experience, or you're coming at it from a, a place that's less less harsh. So mm -hmm. I I think that allows it, it kind of opens up the perspective and and the relatability to. Uh, Characters or people around you, people you see in daily life, when when you come up with some of these ideas or see things that happen, because sometimes poems just write themselves right, when right. when people are out and about. But you 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 can see them with a different uh, a different light now, and and you can I can kind of relate to people I think more than I uh, used to be able to. Do you think you live your life like it's a poem? Um, I used to. Oh, I, really? Oh, <laughs> that's I, another 45 minutes. All right, go ahead. <laughs> talk, to me, talk to me, buddy. Tell me about this. Yeah, it was uh, – I, I would uh, – obviously, when I was younger, you'd do crazy stuff. Like I said, running across the highway and swigging things or, uh, you know, we had this um, – I'd take the car out with friends, and we'd see who the first one to put the seatbelt on was as I <laughs> – my current car over a blind railroad track at a, a oh, 120 wow. kilometers an hour through a blind intersection to see who who'd get scared, you know. Oh and wow! Just all, all kinds of things like that, and just just mm -hmm. the stupid things you do, um, mm -hmm. the invincibility of youth and things like that. And then right. so you know you you kind of live like a poem in that respect. Um, mm -hmm. But how uh, is that like a how is that like a poem? How is that like a poem? Just the freedom of it, the abandon. Wild abandon? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, 
it, it's the it's the it's the freedom of it. It's because okay. that's kind of that's kind of what you look for in the poem. Um, mm. when you're when you're writing for it, it's kind of like a free, just a freedom of experience, right? In what you're doing, in the act of what you're doing, and kind of in the subject matter. But when I was younger, that you know, you're kind of living the subject matter. You're living from couch to couch and doing some of the things I was talking about, and uh, and that's more so, you know, obviously not doing that now. Now I'm uh, older, you know, and you're you you look out and you're worried about the bears going down the street, so you yeah. don't. You don't go outside and walk walk down the street with the bears. So. With the bears, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So speaking of expressing yourself, so if poetry was banned tomorrow, what yeah. would you do instead to express yourself? Well, I can't do music and I can't paint. <laughs> and uh, I, I, can't, I can't do many of the other arts. So I would imagine that I, I would probably have to write in secret. I, I'd be like, uh, um, it's that story of Sholzichin, uh, uh, I think, yeah. uh, Russian writer. And yeah. uh, and the KGB was coming by all the time under Stalin, and, and he was worried that they were going to take him away to the gulag, so he had to hide his yes. writing. So, so he'd yeah. write and then bury it in the backyard and, uh, <laughs> and hide it. So I, I think that would probably be me or, you know. Because uh, I have to write, so I know I'd, okay. I'd still be doing it, but I'd probably be right. like him. Right. You know, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Would you share just one more before we go? One more poem to bring us home from this poetic sure. journey. I'll finish with uh, the dead wear suits. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Boy, you know how to brighten up a room, man. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me uh, oh, oh, always good to finish on a funny note. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> the dead wear suits. Everyone gets to sleep in eventually. And I look down in the casket, realize the dead wear suits, far better dressed than they ever were in life. And the funeral goers put on their suits and all those suits down in the central business district chasing a buck, going through one of the longest dress rehearsals I have ever seen. Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> please read that one again, please. <laughs> I was just settling in, and then you were done. So, <laughs> yeah, it, was, please. it was a quick one. <laughs> it was a quick one. <laughs> please, just one more time. Thank you. <laughs> the dead wear suits. Everyone gets to sleep in eventually, and I look down into the casket, realize the dead wear suits, far better dressed than they ever were in life. And the funeral goers put on their suits, and all those suits down in the central business district, chasing a buck, going through one of the longest dress rehearsals I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Where can kiss where can kiss the heathens be purchased? Um, the usual places, Amazon, Barnes and Noble and that, but the best way is really um if you go to uh Roadside Press, um uh just and get it straight from the, the publisher, that's usually always best. And uh I know uh Michelle's great with that too, so um yeah, I, I'd say I'd suggest go to Roadside Press, and they have uh, they have fantastic authors there, all kinds of books to look at and choose from. So, 
All right. So where do you go from here, my friend? What's next for you creatively? Um, exactly the same. It'll be the same process. It'll be writing, uh, assembling, editing, and just uh, creating more books, creating more art, hopefully working with, continuing to work with great people and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and just uh, create things together. It's, it's uh, fantastic, and that's what I love to do, so I'm sure I'll just keep doing that. You know, I am, I am so glad you're here with me. I really am, and you're the man to me, and I wish nothing but the best. That means a lot, Mike. Yes, you're one of my favorite people. All right, then. Well, I want to thank you, Ryan Quinn Flanagan. (laughs) The book is Kiss the Heathens. Pick it up today. And to you, the listening audience, like I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Good night, Ryan. Uh, Good night, Michael. Thanks so much again. All right, my friend. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.